This is the official HITS training and consulting podcast. We are America's law enforcement canine training resource. We're raising the training bar for police dogs everywhere by discussing the intricate details of the training techniques used by the experts. HITS radio is merging the training world with the real world. You've been there. We've been there too. Welcome to HITS Radio. I'm your host, Jeff Meyer. Today I have another one of our HITS instructors with us today. And I'm, I'm excited about this show because this is a HITS instructor that I actually have never met. Um, and I want to learn a little bit about him. And then I'm anxious to, to see his class at uh, Chicago because I think he has a, a unique perspective that a lot of us who've been on the ground doing searches probably don't have the, the same uh, background. So without further ado, I'm going to introduce uh, Joe Oberding. Joe, how are you today? Good, sir. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks for taking the time to jump on here with us. I appreciate, appreciate you it. having me. Absolutely. So I instead of me going over your background, do you mind just taking a couple minutes and just telling us, uh, you know, kind of the, the your background and, and what you've done in, in our profession? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I'm retired as of this year. I spent 24 years in law enforcement. Uh, started off in 95 working in New Mexico and actually took my first decoy class in 1997. Um, that kind of got me motivated and interested in becoming a dog handler. Um, I became a handler in 2003 and worked with dogs until 2015. Um, about 2007, I ended up going through an instructor course and spent uh, on and off through the course of almost a year in and out of Southern California attending uh, patrol dog and detection dog training courses. Um, basically, our department at uh, probably about six, seven years ago decided they wanted to start working toward having um, more fluid uh like a with the more fluidity with the the assignments and stuff, so they wanted sure. to have more people coming through the assignments. They wanted to push uh, that experience that people gained in that assignment out back to patrol, and yeah. so we started seeing that rotational philosophy hit our department pretty hard. Oh. Um, and so I was uh, rotated out of canine in 2015, went back to patrol for a little bit, and then we had a unique opportunity kind of presented itself. Um, Las Vegas Metro, who um, uh, basically does air support for the entire valley. They opened up a, a TFO or a tactical flight officer assignment to uh, our department. And having worked dogs for so many years and, and, you know, still just loving the patrol mission, I thought that'd be a really great opportunity for me. And I'd be able to use some of the experience and stuff that I had working dogs, um, you know, up in the air and be able to take that information and bring it back to our guys that were handling dogs and, and, uh, other people that I had contact with. So yeah, I put in for the assignment, spent uh, four or five months preparing for that. Uh, went through a six month, uh, certification program and became certified TFO in 2017 and stayed there until I retired. Outstanding. So the department that you were working a dog in, which department was that? That's Henderson PD. It, it, so that's basically right next to Vegas. If I'm Correct. It is. Um, so in our valley, um, Metro is kind of uh, the big brother for that region. Henderson is about 250 to 300,000 people, uh, depending on time of the year and, and kind yeah. of how that's flowing. Um, we were generally about a 10-dog unit. Uh, North Las Vegas was also somewhat connected to the, uh, to the Metro jurisdiction as well. Um, they're a little bit smaller than we were. Um, and then somewhere in that region, you also, you know, you're going to have Boulder City um, and then some of the military regions 
Yeah. How many officers did you have usually? Um, we're floating usually somewhere between about 315, 335. So that's a that's a healthy size unit to have 10 dogs for a 300 person yeah. apartment. Yeah, and, and you know, but um, we we ran with the two dog philosophy. Um, so we would generally run five to six handlers, and each of those handlers would normally be assigned two dogs. Sure. Um, so they'd be running a, a single purpose patrol or SWAT dog, and then a single purpose detection animal. So over the the years, I, I know you went to an instructor school, and um, it, it hits. You're gonna we have you teaching a, a class basically that. Uh, you label, I think, the trinity of apprehension, so of suspect apprehension. So, can you kind of touch base on on what that class is going to be all about? Yeah, um, you know, essentially, when I got into air support, I you really um, got exposed and and got some of the misnomers and things that we uh, when we're working on ground, you're you're participating in ground operation, you start kind of having a uh, an understanding of what you believe is going on or, or what you believe is happening. And once you get on top and you start getting a better overview um, and your, your quantity of calls for service that you're responding to increases, you start to learn some things um, and, you, and you quickly learn that, that it's not always what you, what you think in terms of what sure. the guys up top are doing. And also sometimes what our bad guys are doing on the ground is we're out there searching for them isn't necessarily what's going on either. So the, the basis of the class was that when you're dealing with that serious suspect, you're dealing with that absolute committed um, high risk or, or felony suspect that really does not want to be caught by the police that day. Normally speaking, it's going to take at least two of the three components to get this guy bedded down, get him found and get him taken and placed into custody. Um, I think going through canine, we've all known that, you know, patrol is the bread and butter. And if our patrol guys aren't out there working hard and chasing bad guys and, and wanting to put people in jail on the canine end of life, we're not going to get much work either. Sure. And the same thing held for air support. Um, but we definitely found that in, in watching what's going on up top and watching what's, what our suspects are doing down below us, um, it, it's a pretty unique perspective from the fact that sometimes even dogs and patrol isn't enough or dogs, yeah. you know, a, a single dog team or two dog teams working a perimeter with, um, you know, a decent perimeter isn't always enough to, to capture our bad guys, but it, it takes that harmony between all three entities to really, do an effective job of putting these people in jail. Okay. And I guess on that same you know, harmony, did you have a lot of interagency cooperation with the uh, handlers as far as, did you guys train with Metro a lot with uh, North Las Vegas or any other agencies that were there? Uh, did you guys work together pretty well in concert when you had larger area searches? Yeah, you know what we did. We always had a really good uh, mutual aid agreement between Metro and North Las Vegas. Um, there would be times when their dog teams would be tasked with dealing with barricades or search warrants that they were running, and so we would handle their patrol end and vice versa. Um, and again, if you know, like you suggested, we'd have a perimeter that ended up too large, and maybe one or two dog teams for us were working, we'd call over and they'd send dogs to us. Um, so, in in the growth of our unit, really came from the uh, a lot of the experience that we gained through their trainers and through their handlers um, when I first came on. Their guys were real good to us. Um, they never tried to withhold information or have that whole, hey, we're not going to share stuff with you because, you know, you're the you're the smaller agency in the region. Um, I was fortunate enough to have some really good, motivated people that, that put us in a good position. 
And, yeah. um, and, and so we, we always try to maintain that good relationship. That's outstanding. Yeah, I teach a, a class, a, it's a tactical area search class. And in, in it, I talk kind of extensively about preparing for, you know, that nightmare gigantic search. You know, if you're, maybe if you are a smaller agency, uh, be ready for the day that, you know, maybe you get a, one of your officers murdered or something. You've got a huge perimeter that needs to be done. Be ready to call in more dogs, more resources. And I always tell them, you know, the time to, to be ready for that is long before the night that it happens. And that's why I really encourage training with other agencies, having good, solid personal relationships with all the agencies around you, you know, both, both because professionally it's good. And then also if you do get those gigantic perimeters or whatever scenario, then you're ready for that uh, mutual aid to come help. sounds like you guys had that, you know, in spades there. So that's outstanding. Yeah, we were very lucky in that aspect. And, you know, and that's uh, one of the things that the class really tries to hammer on is developing those relationships. Um, without them, it, you know, you're you're going to be as good as your resources are for the day in relation to, to what that mission is going to be. And if it's, if it's not enough, then you're not going to be successful and none of us ever want to be in that position. So, um, you know, the, that relationship building really starts, like you're saying, very early on. Um, it starts by opening doors and opening windows for, for people when you maybe don't think you need to or that they want to be bothered. Um, you, you know, an example of that, I went up to air support and, you know, we're, we're being shown the overviews of some of the equipment. We're going out on calls for service. And pretty much all of our training happened while calls were live. We really didn't take the helicopters up and go hide a guy somewhere in a storage shed and then go operate a FLIR camera and figure out what that heat signature is going to look like, um, you know, from the air. Um, so you're, you're learning as you're going. And that's something that was very unique to me because in dogs, we spend a lot of time training and learning and, and trying to figure things out before we go onto the road. So, you know, there's times like that, I think, where there's a significant amount of opportunity for us to reach out to other agencies or other entities within our own department or our own jurisdictions and and offer things like that up. So, you know, we, we tell guys in canine units, hey, if you guys are going to put a guy in a, in a storage building or you're going to put him in a trash can or you're going to put him somewhere, even, you know, in an open field hide, um, with maybe a significant amount of brush or something like that. There's absolutely nothing wrong with shooting a text to the guys out in air support, letting them know, hey, we're going to have a decoy set at this time. These are the conditions on the ground at the given time in relation to temperature and humidity and things like that. And if you guys get an opportunity, fly by and, uh, you know, take a look at and see what it looks like to you. So one, they can watch your training. They have an opportunity to watch your dog's work um, in a training environment. And so when they see that dog behavior in the street or on a live operation, they've already got some correlation of, of what's going on with that team, but also so it gives them an opportunity to, to train on a decoy or on a, a scenario that's already set for them. You know, I think we're all in, in the same position where it's difficult to kind of come together at a given time. And, you know, so to commit to a, a training time or training day doesn't always happen, but just shooting a guy a text and saying, Hey, this is uh, what we're setting up this week. If you know, if you're free, feel free to fly by and uh, come out and see what we're doing. Um, if they make it, they make it. If they don't, they don't. But at least you reached out and, and afforded that opportunity, and I think that's greatly appreciated. Yeah, and I think that's that's just an outstanding point that I think people forget. I know years ago when I was still a patrol dog handler, we would do that. We'd call our helicopter sometimes. Not as not as often as we should because we'd simply forget sometimes. But we did call them a few times and tell them, "Hey, we're training over here. 
if you want to, you know, come by and play. And then we'd switch over to our canine channel with them and practice communication, practice working things out. And what that did, what we've realized what it did pretty quickly is once we got better training with them. And even though we, we knew these cops that were flying the helicopter personally, you know, you don't see them every day. So that, you know, out of sight, out of mind sometimes. Once we started doing that, what I noticed right away was it was not uncommon that air support would flip over to our canine channel and say, Hey, you guys listening to channel four? No, what's going on? Oh, they got a perimeter. They're setting it up. I don't know if they're going to call you. So then we'd, we'd start get we started getting business from them and, and vice versa. We'd call them and tell them, Hey, heads up to this channel. Cause you can't listen to every single channel at once. So those types of uh, relationships and training, they go, they go a long ways. Oh, absolutely. No, I, I agree with you 100%. And, you know, even the short time that I was there um, flying around with Metro, we developed good relationships with certain squads and you had teams that you knew on certain days of the week and certain shifts, they were going to yeah. go out, they're going to work, they're going to chase people, they're going to do the job. And so you'd gravitate toward them absolutely. And because you knew you'd have work there. And it was the same thing that we did in dogs and, yep. you know, the same thing you do in, in patrol. Yep. And I always remind my handlers on that same point right there is just like, you know, we'd, we'd have the same busy teams that we, that would get us a lot of work, but I always told them on our end, we need to be that busy team too. The, the guy that shows up with a great attitude, ready, you know, to go find somebody. If, if for some reason we couldn't search, here's why I can't search for this guy. It doesn't meet our criteria, but always, you know, we'd never turn down a search by phone or over the radio. We'd always drive to it and, uh, tell them if we couldn't or figure out a way, you know, if, if maybe we didn't have all the information, but having that same attitude that we're looking for that you're describing, the, the, be the worker bee and let the these uh, patrol officers see that you're the worker bee. Because in our department, you're, we're fortunate we don't have the rotation. So, you know, you, you can get a good assignment. You you could literally, you know, I haven't been in patrol now for 26, 27 years. So or I guess not quite that long, but 24 years. Um so you don't you don't have that close personal relationship with the patrol officers, but they know when you show up if you're if you're one of those guys who's willing to to help them, or if you're a, somebody in a special unit that is kind of a, I don't know a prima donna kind of thing. So I think those the training and those relationships uh, I can't overstate how valuable they are, and it sounds like you guys uh, were under that same philosophy. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, and this is actually a really good point um, that we bring up in the class and that definitely worth making now is that based on the fact that we're all kind of operating in these um, more tactical assignments and, and we end up on missions a lot of times that are not within our own jurisdictions, it's extremely important to reach out to the agencies, particularly that you don't have normally direct communication with. Um, and I'll give you an example of that within our jurisdiction, uh, Nevada High Patrol, we had no common radio channels with them. So as much as we want to respond and be effective and be helpful with them, it was very mitigated when we showed up on scene because we hadn't really spent a lot of time integrating together. And so things that we were trying to get them to do, even by using the spotlight or by the way we were flying around or something, they're not used to that and we can't talk directly to them. So it would hang up the operation a lot. Um, and so that's probably... 
um, one of those things that as a dog handler, as somebody that may be, you know, in contact with air support or the patrol guys, make sure that if you do have communication issues um, between your jurisdictions, try to work that out in advance. Um, you know, see if you can't maybe borrow a radio from somebody that maybe sits with a watch commander or sits with somebody that can deploy that to the scene if that would, you know, be effective yeah. and would help guys uh, work through the problems. That's a, that's a great point. We were fortunate uh, years back that we had a um, our city bought a um, neighborhood that was near Denver International Airport. It's out of our, it's out of the city of Denver, but because of the flight patterns, they bought all the houses in about a four or five block area. Each house was on about a one acre lot, and the city owned all of those. And uh, they just didn't want to have you know have people complaining about the flight patterns from their airport, so they. I think they declared eminent domain or something and ended up with them. But what they gave us for a little while before they ended up uh, tearing down all the buildings is we had a neighborhood to train in. So we took advantage of that and we did a large multi-agency area search and we sent out uh, dog teams from all different, everybody who showed up that was part of our state association. We had probably 10 different agencies um, and we, we planned all of those things and we tried, we have a multi-agency communication truck that we had show up to see how bad communication was. And it was bad that night. It was the first time we had done a big exercise like that, but boy, working through it and, you know, writing down what the problems were and then addressing them later was very, very valuable. You know, to this day, it, it still was some good lessons learned. Yeah. And you know what? And there's a lot of times there's an understanding or, a, a, again, a, a thought that maybe the equipment that I have in my patrol vehicle, per se, like an MDT and the information I'm getting over that screen is the same thing that everybody that's on scene is seeing and hearing. And uh, one of the points I did want to bring up was in, it depends on the jurisdiction, but for example, with us, we did not have a working MDT in the helicopter. The, the helicopters that we were operating were too small. So everything that we did operationally was with manually fed information. So most of your officers that were already within jurisdiction, they had an understanding of that and stuff, but new dispatchers, other agencies, they had no idea. So the information that got funneled to us at times was very delayed or very sporadic or wasn't delivered in the, in an order that would make us more effective. So, you know, one of the things that we do touch on on the class is there is um, there's times where your uh, air support units don't have working MDTs in their helicopters and everything that they're, they're taking is manual. So the order that you give that information to them is super, super critical. And uh, for, for an air support team, one of the, the most important and the thing they need the, the before any other information is I got to know where I'm going. So I need, ma I need majors or I need a, a target address of some sorts. Um, next thing we need is we need uh, suspect description, direction of travel, mode of travel. Um, so that kind of information coming to us in that particular order is going to make a huge difference on our effectiveness in our response to you. Um, but without having that foresight and understanding that we aren't sitting there looking at a computer screen like most of the patrol vehicles have in them, you know, that, that assumption is there. And so some of that information gets left out or the order that it's delivered isn't um, timely. And for us, five or 10 seconds can be the difference between seeing or catching a bad guy for you. Sure. Well, that's, an, that's an excellent point. Excellent. And I guess we did kind of jump over this, so I don't want to uh, forget to, to have you kind of explain that. Uh, you know, agencies that don't have a lot of interaction with air support might be a little bit unfamiliar. So obviously, you know, on the right side, we have the pilot. And I think everybody would understand 
the pilot and how busy the pilot is doing all the, you know, the radio traffic that they're doing. But you were in the left side in the, the TFO spot. So can you kind of explain what that job is and kind of what how busy you are doing that job as well? No, absolutely. That's a great question. Um, essentially, the TFO is the, the police side of the helicopter. The pilot's responsibility is getting us there, keeping us safe, and handling all the air traffic control and various information he has to do as a pilot. The TFO's job is to essentially complete the patrol or the police mission. Um, so from my perspective, I was dealing with, um, monitoring various radio channels. Um, I would take the information, I would make decisions on prioritizing the various types of calls for service and the requests that we had. Um, I would assist in setting up perimeters, um, based on the information and based on the intel that we had on given calls. Um, and, and like you'd mentioned before, you're a lot of times you're monitoring several different channels. You can only do so many at once, but you're dealing with jurisdictions that might have eight or nine area commands. And you might be working in a metro area that's got nine of its own command area commands, um, joining jurisdictions might have three to four channels for each of them. And so it, you really have a lot of multitasking going on. Um, as that information is coming over, you're trying to relay that information to the pilot so that he has the information that he needs um, to be able to get you to the call. Um, so that, and you also, you know, you're, when you prioritize stuff to your pilot, they're trying to make a decision on how critical it is for them to maybe enter certain airspaces or, Hey, we don't need to quite get there so fast. So let's not push it with, uh, you know, with McCarran International or something like that as we're trying to get to that call. Um, so it, it can definitely be very dynamic. And I mean, you could be on your way to a robbery in progress, but all of a sudden now you have a, a, a channel bleed over your ear that you have an officer involved in a foot pursuit and immediately you got to make a decision, which call is more important to me? Where am I going to be able to provide the best service? And it, it definitely can become taxing. And then once you get overhead, your work is just beginning at that point, right? If you're, say you're on a perimeter and you're flying the, the perimeter while the uh, canine officers are doing an area search, you're extremely busy then too. Yeah. You're in, and again, you're still constantly monitoring what else is going on within the Valley, but your, your greatest mission is really providing that overwatch and that overall support of the scene. This is one of the things that I had a difficult time uh, when I was going through my training process was not wanting to just bury my nose into the search. And I had to really open myself up to, to the overwatch concept. And although when, you know, once your perimeter is locked down, canine guys are doing their thing, you know, don't get me wrong. We definitely would start doing our own yard to yard or we do our yeah. own search based on the Intel, but that wasn't the biggest priority for me, um, as a TFO. And it, it was really taking that look in that entire scene. So you're watching for cars that are coming in and out of the area. You're watching for, um, and, and really, I guess the best way to put it is you're looking for that anomaly. You're looking for that thing that is just out of place and doesn't look right. And that draws your attention and goes, hmm, let me look over here. These guys aren't seeing this. We, we need to investigate. Yeah. I, it sounds like a, to me, it, it has always seemed like a great match. If you've been a dog handler, if, if you have the skills to go up on a TFO, cause you've been on those perimeters in a different, a different manner. So a friend of mine from LAPD did that for a long time and it seemed like a, a pretty good uh, progression for a career. Yeah. And, and those guys are great um, out in LA. Obviously they're the, uh, the professionals with, you know, sure. above the professionals when it comes to yeah. airborne law enforcement. Um, and they actually, they put some great, great classes on. Um, 
but it's it's one of those things where you you try to take and you try to apply what you've learned and and really start putting that in and, and we'll watch we'll watch dog teams work and especially we had a, a fairly large group of newer dogs coming through while I was TFOing and it it was a great opportunity for me to utilize some of my canine experience to help kind of inch them toward things that they were missing with maybe their search or with their dog sure. teams as they're you're going through and they're seeing their dog do it they're seeing their dog uh, offer a great change of behavior they're not able to figure it out I'm able to kind of tie that back together and go, Hey, why don't you work a little bit yeah. to your left? Why don't you go a little bit North and, yeah. you know, and helping guys, uh, resolve some of their, their searches, which is, that was absolutely, you know, fun. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So maybe, um, we usually wrap these up around 20, 25 minutes. So maybe in a future episode, uh, let's sit down and talk about, you know, maybe some of the, the good things you saw from above and some of the bad things you saw from above and, uh, it's just, it's such a different angle, and uh, you know most agencies just don't have the luxury of air support or having you know somebody in the helicopter that's, that's had a leash in their hand at the same time. So I think your perspective would be pretty valuable to kind of talk about you know how you tie those together and what you've learned over the years between the two of them. No, absolutely, I think that would be great. Outstanding. And then for those of you who want to see this class that we're talking about, we'll be in Chicago in August. So if you go to hitscanine.com, hitscanine.com, I'm sorry, hitscanine.net, hitscanine.net, you'll be able to uh, check out Joe's biography. The class schedule's up. You'll see when he's teaching it. It's got the whole description of the class. You can meet Joe in person in uh, Chicago, along with all the other instructors. So uh, hopefully we'll see you all there. And Joe, thanks uh, for jumping on today. I appreciate you taking the time. Oh, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. HITS Radio is brought to you by the professionals at HITS Training and Consulting. Don't miss out on the world's largest law enforcement canine training conference. Coming to the McCormick Center in Chicago, Illinois this August, HITS has the most diverse class schedule to fit your training needs. And with over 100 vendors, you'll find everything you need to gear up for your next shift. Register today and save at www.hitscanine.net.